Okay, spicy as this morning. Um, no, for real, uh, so this sermon, I will be um, touching briefly on intimate partner violence and prostitution. So if you've got kids' ears, yeah, you might like to close them. But for some of you, this might trigger painful memories. So I just wanted to preempt that before uh, you find yourself facing that in the middle of the message. Let's ask for God's help as we come to His Word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you might open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Please open our ears to hear what your spirit says to our church. Show us ourselves and show us the Savior, that we might love him and trust him and know him. And we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, I was standing outside on Albion Street here, and um, a, a guy and a girl were walking past, very petite woman, very big guy, and he was hassling her uh, significantly. He was visibly angry, and it was hard not to notice that and to pay attention to that. They got to the corner here, crossed over Flinders Street, and as I was watching, I saw that more and more he was... Uh, growing animated towards her. They crossed the road and uh, he went up to her, tried to grab her, she pushed him back, she kept walking, he kept pursuing. And as I noticed that, I tried to cross over Flinders Street to just make sure that she was safe. And, um, uh, but I got interrupted by the flow of cars. So there I'm standing on this side of the road, watching this guy physically harassing this young woman. And, uh, you know, he's starting to get louder and louder. Uh, he's walking back and forth in front of her, behind her, intimidating her with raised arms, violent voice. And uh, car stops as it's passing by. And the guy yells out, stop hassling her. And he stops hassling her for a moment, comes up to the car, looks like it's going to be a brawl. And the car just drives on. And so there I am, I'm like, oh, what do I do? Finally, the traffic stops, and it's my chance. This keeps stuffing up. But um, finally, the traffic stops, and I do get to cross the road. And I cross the road, and fortunately, I found a buddy. Another guy on the street came and joined me. And we crossed the road, and I went up to him and her. I said, dude, calm down. Don't, you don't want to do something that you will regret. And he comes up to me, gets right in my face. He says, you got a problem with me? I'm like, no problem. I take a step back. He takes two steps towards me. He's like, you got a problem with me? And I'm like, no, no, all cool, dude. Just calm down. I'm just concerned about her. And at that moment, she says, don't worry about it. Just leave me alone to, to us, me and the guy. And and I'm like, are you sure you're all right? She's like, yeah, whatever, just go away. Don't, you know, don't bother yourself with this. And this guy is fully angry. And at that point, my body turned out to be a bit of a chicken. He grabs my shoulder and says, come on, go away. And so I take two steps back. And I'm like, dude, just calm down the way you're treating this girl. You know, he keeps coming up face to face. And at that moment, I had a decision to make. You know, what do I do in that situation? I did what any middle-aged man does. I ran away and called the police. <laughs> but I couldn't help but feel that, you know, like, yeah, maybe that was the right thing to do, but I couldn't help but feel that here was a lady in need, and for me to stay there certainly would have put me in danger, but by walking away, I was leaving this lady in her own place of danger. And it's in moments like this, it reminds me and all of us that the world we live in 
is a very, can be a very hostile place to women. And right now, even in this room, there are a hundred, uh, maybe not a hundred stories, not a hundred people in here, but there are many stories uh, that make this point. Now, what does this have to do with Christmas? What does it have to do with Christmas? Well, over the next couple of weeks, in the lead up to Christmas, we're looking at the stories of five real women in this real world who come from the ancestral line of Jesus. Each one of them teaches us something about Jesus, who he is and what he came to do, and each one of them show us the world we live in, as it's always been, a place that is very hostile to women. And um, and the start of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew gives us a genealogy of Jesus, and what's remarkable about it, for me the most remarkable thing, one of the most remarkable things about this genealogy is that five women are mentioned in it. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and Mary. Now the Jews were very interested in genealogies. They place the greatest possible, uh, they, they put their hope in the purity of their lineage. If there was any man with the slightest mixture of foreign blood in their lineage, then they lost the right to be called a Jew, a member of God's people. A good genealogy, a good family tree, it could enhance your standing and prove your worth, but a bad genealogy, a bad family tree, it would diminish your standing and reduce your worth. And this makes Matthew's genealogy very, very surprising. Because in it, he includes the kind of people that you would not be proud of being in your family tree. And he mentions particularly the name of these five women, which just wasn't done in the ancient world. You would leave out their stories partly because of who they were. But he breaks with custom and he mentions these five women for a certain reason. Now, it's interesting, it'd be normal for him to include the names of the matriarch women, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. These were considered four model women in the story of Israel. But when we look at the stories of the women that Matthew does include in Jesus' genealogy, it turns out to be even more amazing. First, there is Tamar, who, as we just read, dresses as a prostitute, has sex with her father-in-law so that she can have his baby. Weird. And then next week, we're looking at Rahab, who is a prostitute, foreign woman in Jericho. Then there's Ruth, not a Jew, but a Moabite, the sworn enemy of the Jews included in Jesus' family line. Then there's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, whom King David takes and sleeps with while her husband was at war. Bring a friend. We're looking at this on Christmas Eve. <laughs> uh, I get bored of Christmas, uh, typical Christmas passages, so I'm always looking for something spicy at Christmas time. That's why we're doing it, right? Uh, and then finally, there's Mary, a teenage nobody who falls pregnant and claims, yeah, God did it. Right? No one believes her. Five more improbable candidates for the family line of Jesus. And yet, by looking at their stories, we get a glimpse of who Jesus is 
and what he's come to do, that he's come to save everybody and anybody. Each one of them tells us something about Jesus. And today we're looking at the story of Tamar, which is a ripping story. So we pick up this story in Genesis chapter 38, which was partly read for us. The first book in the Bible. And we meet, first of all, this guy Judah, Uh, who is the great-great-grandson of Abraham. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. One of those sons was named Judah, and I've made a mistake here. He was married to a lady who was the daughter of Shua. He didn't marry his Um, mother-in-law. But, you know, nothing would surprise you in this story. Uh, So we're not told what his actual wife's name is, but she died. And, And he's... He, you know, so he would have known his great-grandfather Abraham, grandfather Isaac, father Jacob. He would have known that all of these men had refused to marry Canaanite women, non-Jewish women. For the Canaanites, they worshipped idols, and they would take the hearts of him and his family away from the worship of the one true God. And yet, despite his position, despite his knowledge, Judah ends up marrying one of the Canaanite women, the daughter of Shua. He meets a girl, falls in lust, marries her, and he has three sons. And in verse 6, which wasn't read, we're told, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. We're not sure what he did, But we are told that it was so wicked and cruel that he dies under the judgment of God. And so Tamar, his wife, is left a widow and childless. Then we're told that Tamar marries the second son of Judah, Onan. And Onan too was a wicked man. And so God likewise puts him to death. And so Judah now has one third son, Shelah. And he says to his daughter-in-law, Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. So he's probably a young boy, not around the age of Archer. He needs a couple of years to grow up before he can get married. He says, hey, why don't you go home to your father's house? Stay there, and when my Shelah's of marriageable age, I will marry you to him. Now, you might think that this whole story uh, is an example of patriarchal attitudes to women in the Bible. That here we go, women are property, handed on from one man to another, but this is not the case. Strange though it may seem, this was actually in the interests of Tamar. In the ancient world, a widow was one of the most vulnerable people in society. When their husband died, they couldn't very well go and get a job. They couldn't go down to the butcher and buy meat. They couldn't go to the corner store and get milk. You had to go and work. You had to farm for the meat and the milk. You needed a family. You needed a husband to provide for you and to protect you. And you needed children to look after you as you aged and to carry on your legacy. But if you're a widow, you have none of that. That's why the Bible's full of the command that we are to look after widows, which is weird in our society because the government looks after them or nursing homes look after them. But in in the Bible, no, we have a responsibility to look after widows. 
And um, Tamar was a widow. And no one wanted to marry her because she was viewed as used property. And so very unlikely that a man would come along and choose her. And so in that culture, the custom arose, which was called Leverite marriage, which meant that the father-in-law had a responsibility, the father of the dead husband had a responsibility to protect and provide for the widow. And if he had any sons, and he had to give that son to the widow to be her husband, to raise up children for her, and, uh, and become the heir of the dead man. That was the obligation under law, and that is what Tamar wants. So this is not against women, this story. But in verse 11, we're told that after the death of his second son, Judah tries to dodge the obligation. He says to Tamar, hey, my third son, Shelah, he's too young right now. Wait until he grows up, and then I'll marry you off to him. Go to your father. Don't call us. We'll call you. That's the picture. Now, why does he do that? Well, because we're told in verse 11, he's a little bit worried. He's like, two of my sons died after marrying this woman. I don't want my third son to die. You know, maybe she's the problem. So I've got to do all I can to stop my son marrying this girl. I don't want him to die as well. So he's not so keen for his son to end up married to this woman. But notice he's being dishonest. Outwardly he's saying, hey, I'll provide my son when he's old enough, but inwardly he's saying, heck no, I'm giving you him. Uh, But he's not just dishonest, he's in denial. Because notice who he is blaming for the death of his sons. Judah does not want to admit that the reason his sons died is because they were wicked and the Lord put them to death. We've been told that, right? Verse 7, uh, Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. But Judah is in denial. He doesn't want to admit the mess as a father he has been. He doesn't want to admit that his sons were sinful and rebels against God. And as a result, he passes the blame this poor woman Tamar and he says your bad news I'm not letting you marry my third son my sons are dead and you're the reason for that he's shifting the blame and so Tamar went to live with her father's household he sends her away to her father which evidently was pretty far away with no intention at all of ever taking her again and giving her to his son. Then years passed, years passed, and it begins to dawn on Tamar that there is no way Judah was ever going to be her protector and provider. And so she comes up with an unbelievably bold and dangerous plan. This is what we read. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died, And when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adullamite went with him. Up until this moment, Tamar has been very passive, but now, perceiving the injustice done to her, she springs into action. There's a series of Hebrew verbs which comes along one after the other, show how assertive 
courageous and aggressive she is. When she heard Judah was coming that way, verse 14, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. She says, and what will you give me to sleep with you? And he says, I'll send you a young goat from my flock. In other words, he says, hey, you got afterpay? I don't have my wallet on me. Got no cash. Can I put this on afterpay? And she says, not without leaving your driver's license, right? No afterpay. Where's your credit card? Where's your... You've got to put down some kind of pledge. And so this is what she says. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send the young goat? He said, well, what pledge should I give you? And she says, your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. Men in that day, they wore a seal around their neck, which they'd used to make contracts. And the staff was usually um, engraved as a mark of ownership. And that's what she asked for. Effectively, she says, you can sleep with me so long as you leave your credit card and driver's license. And so he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. She goes home, he goes home, he sends his friend to find her and pay her, but he can't find her anywhere, and he ends up having to ask some people, hey, where's the prostitute? But no one knows where this prostitute is that he's talking about, and so to avoid public humiliation, Judah says, hey, let's just forget about this thing that ever happened. And then verse 24, the climax uh, comes to the story. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah shockingly says, bring her out and have her burned to death. Such naked, unreflective brutality and utter hypocrisy. And here we see God's condemnation of the sexual double standard that is so prevalent in every culture. One standard for men, another for women. Judah has sex with whoever he wants to have sex with. It's not as though Tamar seduced him. See, how did Tamar know that if he saw a prostitute on the side of the road that he'd go for her? This was his settled pattern of operation. The whole story, her whole plan, depends upon it. This is the way he is. This is what he does. And uh, he has sex with whomever he wants, whenever he wants, and yet the minute he finds out that she is having sex outside of marriage, he wants her executed. It's utterly shocking. And the way God has this story written up for us, we hear his condemnation of the male double standard. But more than that, he doesn't just call for Tamar notice to be executed, he calls for her to be executed by being tortured to death. What is that kind of way of execution? That is torture. To burn so it's not just her life is ended, no, she must pay. She must suffer. 
She has something, done something so outrageous, she must suffer. Here is a man, notice, who has led an evil life. He has raised evil sons who are put to death by God. Such was the brutality of their own evil. But he refuses to accept this very truth. He hides his failure as a father, he closes his eyes to the failure of his sons, and he allows for this hate to grow up in his life and it spews out of his heart with this terrible command, bring her out and have her burned to death. This is the defining moment of his life because at this moment, everything is on the line. Not only does Tamar's life hang in the balance, but Judah's own soul hangs in the balance in this very moment. He's about to do an enormous evil. He's about to take a girl who is absolutely innocent. He hasn't done anything, uh, she hasn't done anything wrong to him. She did no wrong to his sons, no wrong to anyone else, and he is about to torture her and kill her so notice, it's not just Tamar who's in danger. In danger, She is in danger, gross physical danger, but Judah's own soul is in danger. That's what's at stake. He's on his way to hell if he does this wicked thing. If he follows through on this evil thing, his life will grow colder and darker and he will possibly be lost to God forever. He's in danger. She's in danger. Who is going to save them both? And that's what's so surprising in this story. Have a look down. As she was being brought out, dragged out to the burning fires, she sent a message to her father-in-law. So dramatic. The Bible has the best stories in the world, right? She sends a message. She's on the way to the fire. They've got her by the arms and legs. They're about to throw her in. She says, hey, I've got a message. And this is what she says. She says, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. Da, da, da. <laughs> and she added, pulling out the package, see if you recognize whose seal and cord these staff are. Take these to my father-in-law. Because if I'm going to the fire, you know what she's saying, then surely the man who impregnated me needs to go to the fire as well. Show these to Judah and see if he recognizes them. Now notice when Tamar calls for him to recognize whose seal and cord and staff they were, she's not just saying, hey, do you recognize your things? She's forcing him by God's grace to recognize not just the things, but to recognize himself. She's not saying, hey, do you recognize these things? She's saying, do you recognize who you are, Judah? Do you see who you've become? Do you see your sexual hypocrisy? Do you see your offside with God in all of this? Do you see the hardness of your heart? Do you see the murderous hate in your heart? Do you see where you're headed? Do you recognize who you are? And by God's grace, for the first time in his life, he does recognize who he is. So verse 26, Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give 
her to my son, Shella. And he didn't sleep with her again. Because that's what we're wondering, right? <laughs> Has he changed? Yes, he does change. Tamar not only saves her own life by her courageous, bold, daring act, he saves his own soul. Judah admits that Tamar was justified in taking matters into her own hands, and in doing so, he finally admits his own guilt and shame. This is the turning point in his life. It was he, if you know the story, he was the one who suggested to the brothers, let's sell Joseph into slavery and make some money off our plot to destroy him. That was the previous chapter. So he's an evil man, but in this moment, everything changes. Everything changes in his life. And he owns his flaws. He owns the fact that he's been fighting God all his life, and he sees his own spiritual weakness. And right at the end of this chapter, we read that Tamar gives birth to two sons, twins, and the younger of whom would become the ancestor of Jesus Christ. So that's why Jesus is known as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. This is Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather. And his grandmother was Tamar. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you and I, we are sitting here today in some part because of this woman in the family line of Jesus. Now, what do we learn from this story? I've got three brief things to say. What do we learn about the ways of God uh, from this story? Three things. Remarkable story, isn't it? Uh, as are all the other women's stories. First thing is this, that God does remarkable things through people who believe his promises. There's a lot of debate about whether Tamar sinned by sleeping with her father-in-law. Some people think, of course, she sinned by sleeping with her. And others say, no, Judah was obligated to provide for her an heir, and in his failure to provide his son to marry Tamar, then she rightly gets from him what she is owed. I don't know. It's too hard for me to work out. Whatever the case, the message of this chapter is that it's an utter tragedy that Tamar would have to take it into her own hands to get justice like this. So irrespective of whether you think Tamar did the right thing or not, she is clearly the strongest character in this story. She is the heroine of the story. She saves the family line of Judah. We wouldn't have Jesus. That's what all this depends on. God had promised Abraham that through his seed would come the promised Messiah who would bring peace to the world. And Judah had forgotten about it. He's got a son and he's not interested in raising up an heir, the heir of Abraham who would bring peace to the world. But Tamar, she's creative, she's brilliant, she's assertive. These are the characteristics of all the great women in the Bible. And you know, in her life, her waiting, her planning, her acting, this was God's plan to bring his own son into the world who would save the world. Without her fearless, creative, daring heist, Jesus may not have been born. The whole history, the whole salvation of the human race was advanced one step forwards because of her actions in this chapter. 
Now, if she can play a role in the kingdom of God like that in such a way, don't you think that you could also? I mean, she was a nobody. And because of the way she lived her life, she advanced the kingdom of God. We all sit here this morning because of this woman. Now, what was she doing? Well, everyone else in the story had forgotten the promise of God. I'm not sure whether she was acting on the basis... But perhaps she was, whatever the case, she advanced the kingdom of God. She, I think she does know the promise of God and she builds her life upon it. And she acts with creative, daring boldness. And that's what it means to be a Christian. God will do amazingly remarkable things in your life if you act on the promises of God. What has God promised? He's going to send a son into the world He's going to return to save them. What are you doing with that promise that Jesus is coming back? God will do something remarkable in your life if you act on it. That's the first thing. Second thing this story teaches is that God treats sinners, sinners, as though they were righteous. Judah says, you are more righteous than I. Now, it's a startling statement, don't you think? Do you remember reading that? You're like, righteous? Really? We're using that word to describe what she did in this story? Like, I'm uncomfortable with applying the word righteous. Like, I kind of probably err on the side of not sure it was the best thing for her to do. I'm not sure, right? But right, he says, you are righteous. Now, isn't that interesting? It's strange because of what she's done. But this is actually the message of Christianity. Despite your sin... God counts sinners as righteous. Now, how is it that God does that in our lives? Because you are a sinner, I'm a sinner. We've fallen short of God's glory. How does he treat sinful people like you and I as righteous? Well, it's the opposite to the way Judah played it out in the story. Because you know what Judah was doing? He was punishing her. He was about to punish her for his sins. But Jesus Christ, he doesn't punish us for his sins. Uh, What we deserve is to be punished for our own sins, but in the death of Jesus Christ, he says, no, for your sins, let me be punished so that you might be counted righteous and clean and forgiven. When and only when you know that kind of of thing that that's how God treats us because of the death of Jesus God treats sinners as though we're righteous because the the Jesus Christ bore our sins upon himself he swapped places with us he the righteous one for us the sinners he trades place so that we might be counted as righteous and he is counted by God as a sinner and punished on the cross so that we might not be That's the great and glorious thing. This story gives us a foretaste. Um, A little illustration of this. Um, You know, in the Tokyo Olympics, was that last year or this year? I lose track. Was that this year? Last year. Okay. Um, You remember this story of uh, in the, what was it, the 200 backstroke Australian gold medalist, Kaylee McEwen. She won the gold, and the other Australian bronze medalist, Emily Seabom, uh, she, she won the bronze, but as the national anthem played, 
Kaylee, who won the gold, invited the bronze medalist up to the podium, to the top of the podium, to sing the anthem. And she was asked about it afterwards by uh, the media. So, you know, why did you invite Sebum up? She won the bronze. <laughs> why didn't you let her stay down third place? And Kaylee uh, famously said, oh, she deserved to be up there with me. And, um, you know, very gracious statement, because obviously she didn't deserve it. She won bronze. She came third, right? That's her place, third place. Stay in your place. But this was an act of grace. This is what the Bible means when it talks about grace. Grace is a particular kind of love. It's love for the undeserving. And, uh, and it's because of undeserved love that she's invited the, to the top of the platform, the podium, to share in the moment of victory with McEwen. She doesn't deserve it, but she's given it as grace. And that's just like us. We are not righteous by nature, but Jesus invites us to the top of the platform. He shares his righteousness with us, not because we were the fastest, but actually because we were sinners and we admit our sin like Judah does in this story. We deserve death and yet Jesus offers life and he invites us to join him in his kingdom and he pours out his spirit so that we might be washed clean. That's what this story teaches us. This is the way God treats people. By grace, people who come humbly to him, though they're sinners, he treats them as righteous. And the third thing and final thing that this story teaches is that God is not ashamed to call you his family. One of the greatest things you have if you follow Jesus is that you belong to the family of God. He's adopted you as one of his very children and he's not ashamed to call you family. Some of you go, oh, but you don't know my story. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've become. I don't, maybe I don't, but Jesus does. And it's for this reason he has this story written down and included in his own family line so that you would know that he's not ashamed to call people like Tamar and Judah family. That entrance into the family of God does not come by pure bloodline, by perfect obedience, it comes by humbly coming to God with empty, dirty hands, asking to be washed clean. Now, when we sit around as human beings and we talk about our family lines, our genealogies, our family trees, I don't know about you, but I boast about who is in my family, right? So in my family line, I'm related to the guy on the $100 note, Sir Douglas Mawson. Right, I have a sir, does that mean he was knighted or lauded or something like that? I don't know, but the, I'm related to Sir Douglas Mawson through my grandfather's line. Like, I boast about who I'm related to. And no doubt you do as well, right? Not sure, who, anyone related to anyone interesting? No. I win? <laughs> Surely. <laughs> Surely someone's related to someone interesting. No one's willing to share it. No? All right, you can tell me later. But, um, you know, we boast. And Jesus likewise boasts. But the people he boasts about um, 
other people we wouldn't boast about. You know what he says? He says, you know, if he came to church today, he'd get up here. He wouldn't put a picture of Sir Douglas Mawson up there. He'd go, you know who I'm, who's in my family? He'd go, Toby Neal. That's who he'd boast about. And everyone would be like, Toby, really? You're boasting that Toby's? And he would get up here and he'd say, yep, in my family. So good I'm related to him. So proud that I'm related to him, that I'm his brother. And he, he's not ashamed to call me his brother. He's not ashamed to call you his sister because I've been washed, clean, forgiven. And he loves us. And he'd stand up here today and name each, of, each one of you by name. Proud of you. And that's why, as boring as they are, the genealogies in the Bible are so precious. Because I don't know who all these people are in Jesus' genealogy. Like, they're just names on a page. But the names represent a person whom God knows. I mean, imagine that. Imagine you were one of the people written in the genealogies, and we get to those parts in the Bible. So boring. (laughs) Imagine if that was your name in the Bible. God knows your name. Wouldn't that be incredible? And God puts the name of Tamar in this story so that if you feel an outcast, if you feel forgotten, if you feel like no one knows you, no one boasts about you, that you would know that God is proud to call you family. In ancient cultures and in modern culture, it's the beautiful women who get the powerful men. And yet every time in the Bible, the people that God works through they're the Tamars. They're the forgotten women. They're the, like, like, they're the barren women like Hannah. They're the despised women like Rahab. In every single spot, God works with the unwanted women. Why does he do this? To show us that we're in his family by grace. You don't get in by being smarter, cooler, stronger, religious, or moral. You get in by admitting your need. God's grace shown to the undeserving. So if we were to read the Bible and we're told to guess which women would be mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, prior to this sermon, maybe you're like, not Tamar, (laughs) and yet he's like, no Tamar. If God can accept her and bring her into his family and Judah with all their mess, it doesn't matter what you've done, what you've begun, God's saying, come home come home to me. And that's what Christmas is all about. That's what Christianity is all about. And that's what this church exists for, to give people the knowledge of the life, love, and freedom that comes in the offer of Jesus Christ. If you haven't received it, ask God for it today. And if you have received it, rejoice. Wonderful. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for stories like this which remind us of your grace, the undeserved love which you shower on us. We recognize that our lives, full of brokenness, sin, at times we rebel against you for which we are deeply sorry. Please forgive us and change us and make us grateful and thankful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.